Hi, I'm Rob Kendall and this is the Front End Podcast. The Front End Podcast explores the ins and outs of life as a developer. We delve into challenging topics around modern day development and technology, including learning, professional growth, programming languages, frameworks, tools, techniques, UX, UI, careers, and so much more. Hello and welcome to episode 9 of The Front End. I can't believe we're already at episode 9. I think I say this at the start of every episode. I can't believe we're on the next episode, but here we are. And today I'm going to do something a little bit different. Do like a bit of a Q&A session. So I've I've done a Q&A post on Dev2 and I've had various kind of questions thrown at me on Twitter and through email and things. I'm just ab- about everything we kind of cover on the podcast. So I thought the best thing to do is we'll compile a little list of the most popular questions and I'll give you some answers. So it's just me answering questions. Um, but if it helps anyone out there, that would be fantastic. Uh, so let's dive right in. Question the first, is HTML a programming language? I mean, why you've got to come at me with such a, a triggering topic straight out of the gate. Um, so, right. So look at it this way. A lot of people like to get into arguments about whether HTML is or is not, in fact, a programming language. I mean, it's more of a programming language than, uh, than say, just typing, like, just random text into uh, in a notepad. But I think, I think it depends. If you absolutely had to press me and said, yes or no, Rob, is it a programming language? Me, personally, I would say no. I think absolutely technically in the pedantic sense of the word i think it is i mean it is you know the bare bones it is a set of instructions that you give to a computer but i think the the clue is in the title is a markup language it gives structure to content you can't solve algorithms with it um it has no concept of of these familiar concepts that we have within languages like uh iterative statements like conditional branching like if statements and things right i think if you look at what we actually use to commonly define programming languages i mean this is a very kind of semantic kind of argument but if you look at the common factors between programming languages like c c plus plus c sharp java javascript go all these other kind of things they all have very common concepts of things like variables some kind of optimization usually you know often some especially for backend languages some kind of memory management we have you know like i said conditional branching we have iterative loops and things like this to kind of control the logic and take some kind of input process that input and then do something with it on the other end and i think html doesn't have a lot of those and i think an easier way to explain it would be maybe looking at say a a motorized trike and a motorbike and and a car and sort of go right we've got this motorized trike it is not a bike it does not have two wheels it has three yet it is not a car so if you look at the characteristics of the trike bear with the analogy for now um i think a, a motorized trike has more in common with a motorbike than it does with a car and i think that's the same way that a lot of people would view it which is why we kind of refer to it as just this broad motorbike term even though it's technically not and i think for me that's where html comes in yes if you're going to get technical i think it is technically a programming language but i think generally the cons in the consensus of what is deemed a programming language no it's not so that's a quite long-winded answer but for me no but I would also finish with it doesn't matter because whether it is or it isn't, it's not like you have another choice. You know, it's like if you want to produce something on on a browser, you have to use HTML because that's what it ultimately renders. Question number two, how to get your first freelancing client and build a following? So 
I went through this this very same thing when I was uh, when I, I started my own kind of marketing firm. It wasn't you know it wasn't massive, but we we had some really good clients like local councils and things like this. And I started from from absolutely nothing. You know, I had the I had no money behind me. I had uh, the experience of being a developer. Like I knew I could produce websites and do bits of marketing, but I had no contacts, no nothing. So. For me, I went to various networking events, and if you've never been to one, they are a terrifying experience, but I recommend you do. And it's basically a bunch of business owners coming together and just making connections, you know, and you'll find that you have people who need your services, you find people who, who you know, you need their services. I think that works very well. Um, there are freelancing sites out there, I can't really think of any, but there are freelancing sites out there where you can where you can post your services uh, and get some jobs but that that's that's the kind of way I did it get a good website that represents what you're about it doesn't have to be all singing all dancing it doesn't have to be a finished product but I think it does have to represent what you offer and and kind of and kind of why um, in terms of building a following yeah you've got a network I think leverage real life networking with actual people uh, real um, and and leverage virtual networking with real life people like uh, like LinkedIn you know get involved in the group start talking to people that way and that that's and it's kind of it's a gradual thing you know I mean paid advertising quite helps as well we used to say this to a lot of business owners who were just starting out you know they were like uh, I've been a bricklayer for you know 20 years and now I want to do my own construction company you know how do I how do I kind of start uh, and we'd, we'd probably we'd say you know that there is this kind of growth hacking phenomenon that some people seem really good at uh some people it, it seems like a bit of a, a mythical kind of atlantis situation for me i think you know you can shortcut that if you can get even a moderate amount of money there is facebook advertising there's google ads you know you can use some of these tools to kind of get your name in front of people and then once you get uh once you get a bit of a following you know we found word of mouth uh, worked quite well you know you'd have a client and then they had a friend who oh they also need a website or they also need a social media campaign or something like that and and it, it kind of snowballed from there so always look out for opportunities question three how do you know when it's the right time to change jobs and is it safe to leave when you're at junior to mid-level right so there's this kind of two parts to that question first off i would say it, it for me it's always safe to leave a job um i've i've never really experienced a kind of problem i think if they're i think it depends how you go about it i i have done this in the past where i've left a job without having another job to go to and that is always a risky maneuver but i would say when i've done that in the past it has been because i've had a ridiculous notice period so i was at the university of york um for like close to a year and they had a really a long notice period it's like three months which is it's, it's borderline ridiculous but like it's going to be very difficult sell to a, especially with you know with a lot of really yeah. talented developers on the market it's going to be a big sell to sort of say to a company yeah i'd like to work for your company please but can you wait like almost a quarter of a year for me to kind of close out this this current job that i'm doing so i left that without anywhere to go because i thought well i've got three months to find a job i would be astonished if it takes me three months uh, in the current market where there were at the time far more jobs than there were candidates I thought I'm, I'm sure I'll be fine and kind of I was I knew I had a lot of experience behind me um, but I, th I think it's always safe I don't think it's a junior to mid-level or any particular I think it's about you you know I, I think it's always kind of safe but I would, I would get a feel for the market first like the way we are at the minute with all this COVID business the job market has become a little bit more stabilized in terms of the ratio between the amount of jobs available and the amount of developers to do those jobs so it used to be very uh, used to be very job heavy 
so there were a lot more jobs than there were developers which was great for for you as a candidate right but i think with with covid it's kind of flooded with redundancies and, and all that kind of thing it's flooded a few more devs into the market so that there are it has evened out a little bit I'll, certainly that's what i get the impression speaking to my recruiter friends in terms of how do you know when it's the right time to change jobs it's a tricky one I, I think it comes down to you and kind of your plans so i think first and foremost if you are in a very toxic environment um and that's you know can be difficult to kind of explain because it means different things to different people but for me you know if you're having to work super long hours all the time if you're being made to do things that you don't like doing or you don't agree with if there is an ethical conflict somewhere if you work in a very negative culture um, and what I mean by that is like it's an ongoing oppressive negative culture I don't mean like everyone, everyone has a bit of a whinge we all have bad clients we all have a boss that just you know it sometimes makes you you know just want to pull your hair out you know we all work with colleagues that just get on our nerves sometimes and, and we probably do that to them as well you know you're working with people people plus people is is great but it also creates friction sometimes so i don't mean these one-off things where like oh that, that one project we did it was a bit of a nightmare wasn't it you know you should be able to have a, a bit of a moan every now and again but i think if that negative attitude is the norm that to me is you know signs of a very kind of toxic or the certainly the starts of a toxic workplace you know you've got these sort of black holes of people who just pull everything down with absolute opposite of a, of a positive attitude you know that that can be a good sign to change jobs sometimes it can be you can work for a really great place but you can just sometimes run out of rope you know a, a lot of times for me I've changed jobs because I've ended up as like the big fish in the small pond and that's great for a while but you, you stop kind of having people to learn from and, and new experiences to gain you know if you're in a, in a company that's kind of fairly stagnant and it's not really pushing you know you don't have to live on the bleeding edge but if it's not pushing any boundaries if you're not learning new things if you're not you know growing and learning that can sometimes just be the right time to change you know i think you you want to keep moving forward and especially in development it can be quite a fast-paced environment so i think if you're not learning and growing and challenging yourself then yeah i think it's it's probably uh it's probably time to to move on Question four, any tips or advice on how to balance your day job and freelancing? That is like the one of the holy grail sort of questions. I think ultimately, if I was an employer as well, I think you want to not let your freelancing interfere with your day job. Uh, unless you've got a very forgiving day job or you know, you've got a very flexible one where you can portion some of your time to doing other things or you can work flexibly, like start late. And, and for, like I'm remote, for instance, um, and generally in the places I've worked that are fully remote, the schedule's a bit kind of just see how it goes and fit in with, with however you want. Because you're all remote, you know, you might, have a, you might have a couple of meetings throughout the day, like a stand-up or something where you've absolutely got to be there. But outside of that, you know, no one really cares what time you're clocking in and out so long as you're meeting your hours and you're getting the work done. Um, so, you know, I, I would say you've got, kind of just got to fit it around there. I, I think rather than how to balance it out i think it's about knowing when you've taken on too much so i wouldn't so much say how do i balance the day job and freelancing because it's a bit like how do i balance my job and my and the gym is that will you go to the gym usually before work or at lunchtime or after work right i'd probably say the same thing with freelancing you do it either before you start if you've got that opportunity or on an evening or maybe it's a bit at weekends but I'd sort of know how much how much time do I have to apportion to freelancing per week and then how much work can I take on that will kind of fit within that 
you know, there's no point in taking everything and anything on to end up with two full-time jobs because you'll just, you'll just die a horrible stress-induced death. Question five, what kind of technology skills do you expect to see in a front-end devs portfolio? And, you know, uh, this this is a worry for a lot of junior and aspiring developers. And I'd probably say, you know, I think it's good to have uh, a range of skills, but I would probably focus on more complete projects. So, you know, I, I think if you're looking at front end devs, it'd be nice to see that they have some grasp of sort of HTML, a good standard of CSS, uh, and obviously then JavaScript on top of it. After that, it depends what you're going for. You know, do you want to go down the React route? It won't hurt to have some kind of display of a modern kind of framework, whether that's Vue, whether it's React, whether it's Angular. But even if it was just plain vanilla JS, I think it'd be nice to have um, a few different examples and diverse things in there that it shows what you've been doing, whether it's, but I think more complete projects. I wouldn't just have like a, you know, I've got this one class javascript class that kind of does this one thing you know it's about showing off what you've learned and how you think and i think we'll we'll come on to this in one of the later questions but i think if you do something like free code camp or one of these kind of boot campy courses you know you will probably come out with more of a complete project at the end of it whether it's like a, a uh, an app that connects to an api and does something that's that's quite good to see on a portfolio i think Question six: What is your definition of a front-end developer? These are the the terms are getting very difficult now because you know I think traditionally you had this very back-end role and then this very front-end role. And I talked about this on episode six, I think, with Ben Furphy. You know, we talked about this kind of: Is there a better definition of the word like front-end developer? I think front-end developers for me it's not strictly uh, about the technologies used although that does come into it but i think it's about that your your interests and your focus lie with the layer of the whatever it is you're building with the application that your user interacts with so you are the kind of initial interface between the user and the job or the intent they they are trying to achieve so i think front end developer uses you know an ever increasing uh, range of tools to build that interface you know i think they are concerned with the look and feel the interaction between the user and the kind of the app itself uh and and achieving that that common goal so you know it's it's a it's a shorter answer but i think that's that's for me the definition of a front-end developer question seven i'm currently learning react and i'm seeing frameworks like next and gatsby and things like that uh, i'm thinking do i really need to learn these frameworks or is react alone good enough uh, I, I think for me if you're if you're at the start of your journey i think i would get a good grounding in the sort of holy trinity of front-end developments it's html css and javascript bear in mind every single framework or library or other thing that you use is built on top of JavaScript, right? So whether you go down the Vue route or the React route or the Angular, they are the kind of arguably the three most popular frameworks or you know app building frameworks out there. They are all essentially different ways to kind of manipulate HTML via JavaScript. So with Angular, you drop these little, little ng tags into HTML. So you write your HTML and you stick these ng tags on to achieve like for loops and things. Uh, view is is kind of similar and then react you've actually got just kind of the javascript functions or classes that you have html inside of but at the end of the day even even react it's still just javascript so you know in terms of what you should be learning you know there are a million and one different libraries and frameworks and things out there do you have to actually learn them all no i would say it's good to have a bit of exposure
exposure to a couple even if you just do a couple of kind of decent tutorials so you get a feeling for it so that if you come across it in the wild it's not completely unfamiliar but i think for me i would focus most of my efforts on you know vanilla javascript nice modern javascript that you can that you can use because you will see that come up time and time again more than any specifics of react or view or next or gatsby Question eight, do you think Stack Overflow contributions matter as much as side projects from an experienced dev or employer perspective? I wrote, I've literally just written an article last week about this. Um, Well, not specifically Stack Overflow, but it was more about like GitHub graphs because that was coming up a lot on Twitter about the, the kind of importance of GitHub graphs in terms of employment and things like that. And I think Stack Overflow comes close to it. The short answer is no. I don't think it does. I I personally have never applied for a job and had someone say, "Oh, well, your GitHub graph is uh, is a bit, you know, a bit patchy," or "Well, I notice you're not on Stack Overflow much." I I don't think. I think it's quite helpful to go back and help the community, uh, especially by answering questions that you can on Stack Overflow and things like this. But I absolutely do not think that Stack Overflow matters. It certainly shouldn't matter at all. You know, I think side projects are, are really sort of helpful from an, from an employer perspective. And even that, I think it's mainly to look at how you think and how you approach problems, which is what development's all about. So no, no, I don't think it matters at all. And if it does, it certainly shouldn't. And if it did, I would not want to work with that employer because that is such a vague metric on how to gauge someone's kind of level of value. Question nine, to what extent should a front-end developer know back-end or DevOps? So I think, you know, when you work in development, there is an awful lot of, you work in a series of Venn diagrams for me. So you have back-end people, you have front-end people, you have DevOps, you have uh, design and you have like marketing and these other kind of, you know, teams that work very closely together and there's an awful lot of overlap with some of them and i think that is where we get you know especially between back-end devops and front-end and design there there's a big venn diagram between them and i think whilst you as a front-end dev or a back-end dev shouldn't really be expected to run the complete end-to-end devops cycle because devops in itself it wouldn't exist as a separate role if it didn't have quite a lot of skills and quite a lot of things involved in it, if it was just as simple as like, oh, just set up a, a pipeline in Azure or things like that, there wouldn't be a dedicated role for it. So I think when you see these job applications where they're like, yeah, we want a front-end developer with eight years and they should be able to do DevOps-related activities and they should know all these back-end technologies well, I don't, I don't think that's quite right because you're basically asking for two or three roles to be done by one person. But I think you should know, you should have a little bit of experience with this. Now, there's multiple different ways you can get that. You can set up your own site using Netlify, say, or you can use, well, yeah, Azure Pipelines that I've just mentioned. You can, you know, you can use, set those up yourself to build your code on a very basic level. But I think you should have some understanding into that world of that other person's job because it helps you communicate better with what you're trying to achieve and what their expectations are so i think yeah you should have some experience but i shouldn't think you you know i I wouldn't expect you to be like a fully fledged devops engineer or coming from a front-end background i wouldn't expect you to sort of go here's c sharp build me you know a back-end api but i think it's helpful to be able to converse and communicate better with other departments question 10 what do you think differentiates a junior mid-level and senior dev 
a lot of people worry about these kind of terms, what the difference between junior and mid is, mid to senior, what what happens from there. Uh, I think partly it's experience. I think people who are relatively new, you know, just in terms of experience, they might have learned everything in the book, but I think just in terms of their actual real world applicable experience, I think if that is quite shallow or just new, I think they fall more into the junior level. I think mid-level devs can have such a varying degree of experience there might be someone who's uh, just moved up from being a junior they might just have a, a bit of experience but you know more than just starting out so their knowledge is either broadening or deepening in a particular topic but they can be very vastly experienced with many years experience uh, as, as well and still not be maybe a senior dev when you get into the realms of senior i think you then get into kind of the the leadership quality so whether you're actively doing management of people maybe a team lead or you certainly just have some kind of mentoring capacity in there i think that's when you make the move from like a mid or sort of standard level dev which is like an awful way way to put it but i think that's for me when you move from that level into more senior it becomes about experience and leadership capacity or, or duties Question 11, how do you make side projects to show off your skills to potential employers? Uh, So for me, I touched upon this earlier. I think the best kind of side projects are ones that show some kind of end-to-end solution, a more complete, holistic solution, and ones that show off how you think and that you can talk through confidently yourself about how how you've approached the problem, why you've made certain decisions, uh, and gone down that path so that is the, the the thing that I would do an example of this uh, I always use it because I think it was really good but one of my mentees uh, that I that I work with he built this kind of lyric search app and it's a very nice it's built in react um, but it's a very nice kind of it looks pretty good and it works really well so you can do a search for like an artist or a song track or a, an album title and it'll find you the artist's details and you can rummage through their kind of back catalog of of songs and and work Uh, you know it's not a massive project it's not super super complex but it highlights a bunch of different skills he's got uh react router in there he's got some idea of redux you know it's talking about it's talking to an api and he can go through and explain the decisions that he made in order to solve the problem that he set for himself so i think that is a really good example you know just having like a simple well i did this design of a web page just html and css on its own isn't it won't give you as much scope to kind of show off your skills so anything that can show you off, show off the skills and the way you approach problem solving is 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 good in my book question 12 i struggle with css a lot like a lot how should i go learn and get comfortable with it so one of the best bits of advice I give people if they want to up their CSS game, because a lot of people I find, they come along and they're like, yeah, I'm learning JavaScript, I'm learning loads of it, it's brilliant, should I learn React? And they kind of gloss over HTML and CSS, and these are very vital skills to have. So one of the best bits of advice I give is to actually go on a site that does like uh, website themes. So it might be WordPress themes, something like this, but basically go on a site like Theme Forest is good for this. I'll just type in, um, you know, HTML website themes or something like that into Google and have a look at some designs. Then what I would try and do is replicate those designs using CSS, because really that's the thing that's going to replicate real world practice more than anything else. And I think the more of those you do, the more you get comfortable with solving very familiar problems that you will come across. Like, how do I lay things out in a straight line? How do I vertically center stuff? 
how do I kind of solve a grid pattern for a particular layout? So I do that. Just literally find some designs that you like the look of. It doesn't have to be the entire website, even if it's just the home page, but find a design that you like and try and replicate as much of it as you can, as closely as you can with H, with uh, CSS, sorry, because I think that will replicate real life more than anything else. Question 13, how do you keep up to date with a daily changing world of technology? This is quite a good interview question, actually, because people, it's one of the better ones. Um, Emma Bostian raised this actually on, on the last, the very last episode uh, when we were talking about interview questions and did she have any favourites? And she said one of her favourites is is that is that kind of question, like how do you keep up to date with things? And I think partly the first thing is to realize that like look it feels like things change an awful lot faster but we're also inside that environment as developers so it's a bit like the i think it's a bit like the conveyor belt sort of syndrome it's that relative movement i think people outside of our industry look like it's just every day something brand new to learn and it's like how, how on earth do you keep up with it but when you're actually inside of it you know it moves at a little bit of a slower pace there is this this kind of top layer where stuff yeah we've got a brand new framework that's come out and everyone's um clambering over i mean the, the latest thing that's come out recently is dino the kind of successor or if you like to um to node built by the same chap who built node um and everyone's clambering over themselves to sort of start doing stuff with that and it's like well yeah, it's going replace node straight away and it's like it, it's not it's going to take a while because that ecosystem is just too big with node to just be wiped out overnight but anyway getting getting back to the to the actual question how do you keep up with it i'm quite active in the twitter community i think that helps a lot because you, you get to speak to a lot of other devs with a lot of other opinions and different approaches doing different jobs with different technologies and you get to learn about different things i think if you are fortunate enough to work with a company that is quite keen on kind of keeping up to date itself you can leverage some of that whether it's some learning time on on the company's dime or whether it's something you can do yourself and, and bring to the table look we've we found this thing so we found tailwind css this could be a really great way to solve this problem that we're having uh, in our in our workplace um, i found this other tool or this other library that might kind of might be great to explore because it's a lot faster or it's a lot easier to implement i don't know I, I think if you can just keep your ear to the wall as it were and what's happening and what's up and coming and any changes and see if you can leverage some of those to improve your developer experience or the experience of your clients and customers great then you should you should get all over it i also read a lot of blogs as well um, I use um, Feedly, it used to be Google Reader, but then when Google binned it off, I got Feedly and I kind of subscribed to, you know, again, some people off Twitter, just a lot of very, you know, popular articles. And, and I read a lot of people's articles on Dev2 and see, just get, you know, a feel for like what's out there, what, what are people up to? Question 14, how do you structure your project in folders and files? I don't spend too much time on it, if I'm honest, because if you're starting out from a, from a fresh with brand new you know, brand new structure, brand new greenfield, expansive field in front of you to program from. I take my advice from the React website itself, and there's a there's an FAQ. I can't remember what it is, but it's an FAQ on the React website that says how shall I structure my project. It literally says on there, don't spend more than five or ten minutes thinking about it and just start doing it. And I think that is usually better you know if we're talking say specifics of like a react project because that's the most recent stuff i've worked with right what i'll tend to do is i will kind of have a components folder i'll have an assets folder where i'll put kind of um any images and and like third party javascript things in there i'll have a sas folder because i'm working with sas 
Um, and then I'll have a kind of maybe a containers because I quite like that approach of presentational components and ones that manage more of the kind of the logic. I know with hooks, it muddies the water. And, but I quite like that. So that's how I'll structure it. But I won't spend too much time thinking about it. I'll just go, here we go. You can always look at things, look at how you're going on later on and kind of, you know, restructure stuff. It, yeah, if, if it can be a bit of a, um, a bit of a swine to do it if you, you know, I've got loads of files and folders. But I think just keep an eye on it. Start somewhere just start don't spend literally more than five ten minutes thinking about it get it's more important to start programming and start making something happen you can worry about organizational stuff slightly later on or as you go along question 15 do you ever write dirty code in order to finish small projects faster um no have i ever written dirty code to finish to get something over the line yes uh, I'm not afraid to admit that, uh, even though I don't like the idea. But generally, no. I think there are deadlines, and some of those are hard, and some of them are fixed, and some of them are movable. And I think there comes a point, especially if you're working in an agile way, whether you're sort of constantly iterating and reviewing what you're doing, I think you come to a point where you will recognize that something is not going to be achieved. And then you have to kind of work to the deadline, and you either... Because with the laws of physics here, really, if something can't be moved, then, you know, something, something's got to give somewhere. If the deadline can't be moved, then something's going to have to be sacrificed. Um, and I would say that that usually should be some kind of feature or expectation, not the quality. I don't think as much as possible, or, you know, as much as is humanly possible, you should not compromise on the quality of your code. That should come first. You might have to cut a few corners or take a few shortcuts, or you might have to sacrifice yourself going through and refactoring things a little bit sometimes. Or you might have to delay it to the next sprint or a couple of sprints time to go to actually physically go back and go, right, we're gonna just tidy this up. But you should never leave things in a in a really poor quality or a right dirty hacky code. Yeah, I know it happens and sometimes it's unavoidable. It depends on the workplace, but I think you should try and factor as much of that in as possible and go, you know, we're not willing to compromise on it because ultimately it's you're only shooting yourself in the foot for later on because it's you that has to come back and deal with that dirty code. It's not like, you know, and this would be bad enough, but it's not like you're kind of bundling it up, shipping it off somewhere and going, wow, well, that's someone else's problem. Although that's a terrible attitude, you know, this this literally usually with development will come back to haunt you in particular. So, you know, you've kind of got to think about your future self and your future teammates and think, yeah, we're, we're not going to let that happen. We're not going to compromise on that. And our final question, question 16, how do you manage CSS in large projects with multiple front end developers working on the same projects? So this is more of a realistic kind of environment, right? So for me, if you're talking about how, yeah, how do we manage kind of CSS with lots of developers working on a project? So one of it is about having a decent code versioning solution in place. I'm going to say Git because uh, I haven't seen anyone use Subversion uh, apart from many, many, many moons ago. And I've never seen anyone use Mercurial, uh, even though that is a thing. I've never, ever heard of anyone using it or worked anywhere where they do. If, if, if anyone has got that experience, please let me know. Um, so we're talking about Git, right, for code versioning. So that, that kind of helps avoid any, you know, mega sort of conflicts and things. After that, we're, I, I would say, working to an agreed design standard um, or, or set of standards. Now, this might be a design system and it might be one that you've brought in 
externally. So it might be Bootstrap, it might be Bulma, it might be Material UI, one of these kind of third-party open source ones that exists. It might be that you have written one internally between user development team and say the design team. Uh, so you've got a bunch of kind of known components and elements and, and design systems that represent how certain par- portions of the UI should look. And I think you come together and you agree those standards. Um, this again helps with communication and it helps reduce errors and it improves maintainability. Um, and then I think it's it's about working to those standards and then having some kind of accountability. And it's not a blame system, but I think where you have um, merge requests or a pull request, or you have that kind of code review system so that someone else is looking at what you're checking in and going, does the, you know, from an objective third party point of view, second pair of eyes, they're looking at it and saying, does this meet our agreed upon standards for how we should do things? And then I think that basically reduces errors. And then obviously, you know, it's into just how you design the work. You know, I wouldn't have two developers working on the exact same file at the same time in a sprint because you're going to get a lot of merge conflicts and that's not what you want. But I think that that is basically the flow of it for me. You have an agreed upon design system or set of standards that you are going to work to or work within. And then we all hold each other accountable to adhering to those design systems. And that helps improve the maintainability, the quality, and, and just, yeah, it makes it makes things a lot smoother. So that's it. That's, that's the, the quick fire of it all. That is, you know, in, an, in a nutshell, the most common questions that I come across and my take on them. If you have any other questions, do leave me a message. You know, you can find me on Twitter at just at Kendall Mint Code. Uh, you can shoot me an email. It's just me at robkendall.co.uk. You can find me on my website and leave a comment on there. You can find me on dev2, which is the same. It's dev.2 forward slash Kendall Mint Code. Uh, do find me on there. Ask me any questions. Uh, I do have a post on there, which is dev2 slash Kendall Mint Code slash senior front end dev here. Ask me anything. But basically, if you do a search for me, you'll find that and leave me a question, leave me a question on there. More than happy to share my experience um, and be interested to hear other people's other people's responses as well other people's thoughts maybe not about the html as a programming language we, we really don't want to start a war here um, but yeah thanks for listening so that's it for this episode do consider subscribing and give us a like or a share on social media speaking of which if you'd like to follow the show we're available on twitter at frontend podcast you can follow me rob kendall uh, on twitter too at kendall mint code if you'd like to find out more about the show sponsor an episode or be a guest you can find out more on the dedicated website thefrontendpodcast.site 